Well, we'll come to the time now in our service. We're going to look at a passage from the Bible. We'll talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, would you turn to Hebrews 11, continuing in this series that we began last week in Hebrews 11. If you're using this Brown Pew Bible, it's on page 851. And as uh, is the case now through each week, we're kind of balancing between both the passage in Hebrews 11 and what it's referring to. So if you stick your finger here and flip all the way to the front of your Bible to Genesis chapter 4, you'll find on page, I believe it is, 3 Genesis chapter 4, and maybe stick a piece of paper, a pencil, something in there so that you can have that. And when you found those, Hebrews 11, Genesis 4, stand with me and I'll read our passage together. start with Hebrews passage, beginning with verse 1. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Verse 3, by faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what is visible. I'm going to pause here for a second because we're spending all our time in verse 4 and none of our time here, but why would... When he says, I'm going to talk about the ancients, why would he start talking about creation? Very simply, I think what he wants to set up is, not only am I going to give you a list of a whole bunch of people and what God did through them, I'm going to show you that even the context itself is created by God. It's all his. That in this story God is writing, he is both the playwright, the casting director, and he's also the set designer. He, he, he made it all. It's all his. Let's carry on. Verse 4. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith he still speaks even though he is dead. And look, here we are still talking about him today. Flip over with me now to Genesis chapter 4. We'll start at verse 1 there. Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And she said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse. And driven from the ground which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you're driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. 
I'll be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us once more and just ask God's blessing on this time and his word that he would reveal to us what he wants to show us here. Living God, we come before you now uh, to your word, asking you to open this up to us, uh, open up our hearts, open up our ears to receive whatever it is you want to show us in your word this morning. In each one of our hearts, we come in from a particular context in a particular week with different struggles, with different things on our minds, and I believe you have something to say to us through this passage to each one of us individually. There's a reason you've brought each one here today. You tell us in your word, when you send out your word, it doesn't return to you void. It will accomplish the purpose for which you send it. Oh God, accomplish that purpose in each one of us today. As I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Well, this is a phenomenon that shows up in all kinds of different places, which you've probably seen as well, where you have two things in front of you, ostensibly just identical things in front of you, and yet, for whatever reason, at least it's not obvious to you, one of them just works and the other doesn't. One is effective, the other isn't. One is accepted and the other isn't. Uh, There's all kinds of places where this works, uh, different examples, but the example that came to mind this past week as I thought about it was wedding engagements. Don't ask me why that came to my mind, but wedding engagements was an example of this in my mind. Now, I probably don't need to convince anyone in here. That, that it's, when it comes to these things, for the most part, it's going to be a tough sell for the ladies in here to get your husband, your boyfriend, a group of guys together to want to sit down with you for a night and watch something like Wedding Story on HGTV. It's prob- I'm not, I don't want to speak for all of you, but probably most guys are not going to be like, I want to do that. It's just, just, just not something that's on our mind. We don't want to watch elaborate engagement proposals. We don't want to see people arguing about What's the best fabric we should use for the bridesmaid dresses? Not interested. But what you might have more luck with is getting him to sit down with you uh, watching YouTube and seeing wedding engagement fails. <laughs> have you ever seen these on YouTube before? It's, it's, it's crazy. There's still wedding engagement, elaborate engagement proposals, and yet, rather than ending with somebody engaged... You end with nobody engaged, and the guy probably like checking his receipt to see what the return policy is for engagement rings. I don't know why. I don't know why we prefer those stories. We find them more interesting than the others, but here's why I bring it up. If you've seen at least one of each of those engagement stories, the successful ones and the not successful ones, what you probably will stand out to you is that at least from our perspective, they both look the same, don't they? They both, I mean, both people tried to create a romantic atmosphere. They both spent the recommended two-month salary on the engagement ring. They both sometimes even got down on the same knee. And yet, for whatever reason, one engagement proposal ends with tears and hugging, and the other ends with tears, I don't know, having champagne chucked in your face. 
One is accepted, one is rejected, although they look on the surface identical. We're continuing this series we began last week through the 11th chapter of Hebrews, we're calling By Faith. Each week what we're doing is we're looking at some of the numerous examples given there of men and women who accomplished seemingly impossible things through the course of their lives. And the hope is that as we study their stories, we too might be encouraged as we face whatever the impossible things are going on in our lives, or that we might face together collectively as a church. But as I mentioned last Sunday, what we need to remind ourselves again and again is that Hebrews 11 is not some kind of compendium of superheroes. That's not what it's showing us. No, in, what it's showing us again and again is men and women who, who are equally as flawed and weak as any of us, but who were enabled to accomplish these impossible things. They were enabled to accomplish them, and in every instance, the means by which it's said they were enabled to accomplish these things, to make the impossible possible, is faith. By faith, they were able to do these things. Now, last week we focused on verse 1, where we were given that clear definition, clearly defining the terms of what does he mean when he says faith, defining what that is. Today what we're going to focus on particularly is verse 4 and what Hebrews 11 wants to teach us about living by faith through this story of Cain and Abel. Uh, uh, That's found in Genesis 4, a story that we just heard, which in a similar way kind of presents a picture like what we just talked about, this phenomenon where you've got two seemingly identical offerings, both guys bringing an offering to God, and yet one offering is accepted The other is rejected. From our outside perspective, we look, we we can't see it all. Why would one be accepted and the other rejected? And we'll get to exactly why that is as we get going here. But big picture, the impossible thing Hebrews 11 wants to present before us this morning is this. It's a problem that's been faced by everyone since Adam and Eve, and, and actually we continue to face today. It's namely this. How can men and women who've been separated from a holy God by their sin be acceptable before him. That seems impossible. How, how can we do it? Sin has separated us from God. How can men and women who are separated from God still be acceptable before him? Because if you know this story immediately before, this story we read about Cain and Abel in Genesis 3, you know that when their parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God's good rule and sinned all of God's creation including humanity, became fractured, became infected with sin's curse. And as a result, they were forced to leave that that Garden of Eden. They were forced to to be cut off from, separated from the place where God's presence dwells. Because of that now, every single person since then has been both infected with the same curse and separated, cut off from relationship with God as well. So what do we do about that? Well, here, what we read in that story, somehow, Adam and Eve's youngest son, Abel, he was able to bridge that impossible gap somehow between God and humanity. If we want to learn from him, hopefully how we can do the same thing ourselves, I want to look at our passage and what it teaches us about that in three ways. I want to show you, first of all, faithful offering. We'll talk about faithful offering, then faithful mastery, and then we'll close this morning by looking at our faithful Savior. Okay, those three things, faithful offering, faithful mastery, close with 
our faithful Savior. So if you've closed your Bibles, would you open them up again to those two passages, stick a bookmark, something in there. We're going to jump back and forth between them. I want you to follow along with me as we look at this contrasting example from Hebrews of what it means to live by faith. Let's look first of all at faithful offering. Faithful offering. Now before we can talk about why it was that Abel's sacrifice was accepted and Cain's was rejected, we need to understand why it was they were bringing these offerings to begin with, right? What were they even doing? Because, listen, if you're relatively new to Christianity, you're just here for the first time checking this out and, 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 and don't know anything about the Bible, it's totally fine if you don't know. But if you've been at this a while, you might, something might have stood out to you as you were reading that. You might have been like, you see them bringing offerings to God, and you might have thought, well, wait, isn't it, isn't it like way later in Exodus where God sets up this sacrificial system, this is how I want you to serve me, bring these animals, offer this. What's going on here? How come they're already doing that? There doesn't seem to be any reason. We don't understand why that's happening. And if you look at the storyline, though, from Genesis 4, we just jump immediately from Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sinned, they're kicked out of the garden, to now all of a sudden, here's Adam and Eve's two sons bringing these offerings. We're given no context as to why, who told them they were supposed to do that or what they hoped to accomplish with them. The only real indication we're given to, that, to answer those questions in Genesis 4 anyway, if you want to turn with me back there, the only real indication we're given as to Either of those questions is what we read in verses 6 and 7 there. This is after Cain's offering has been rejected. He's feeling all choked about this. And God comes to him and he says this, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. So we learn a lot of things from that, actually. But as it relates to the question at hand, we see, I think, at least three things. First of all, either from their parents or from God himself, that's how these guys were instructed as to what these offerings were that they were supposed to offer, how they were supposed to do it, and how they were supposed to do it rightly. We know that because God says to Cain, hey, if you do it rightly, won't you be accepted? So we know that he knew what that was. He knew what it meant to do it rightly, and he wasn't. Secondly, we also know that although we're not told how, Somehow, Cain and Abel were able to determine whether or not that offering was accepted or not. We don't know what it is. Some people say fire from heaven. Maybe it was like a big emoji in the sky. Yes, thumbs up. Yours is accepted. We don't know. But somehow they were able to determine. My offering is accepted. Mine isn't. And we know that because Cain is so choked here because he knows his offering hasn't been accepted. Finally, the last thing we see is that the primary reason these offerings were being brought to God was to be accepted by God. For these people who are now stained by sin to be accepted by God. We know that because God says, if you do what is right, won't you be accepted? So we know that much at least. And yet again, as it relates to the problem we started out talking about, we, you look at these offerings in verse 3 and 4 that Cain and Abel bring. They're both bringing something. And from the outside perspective, that we, we're looking at it, we don't see any real difference between them. We can't discern why would one be accepted and one not be accepted. Now, some commentators have suggested that the simple reason that God accepted Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's is because Cain's offering was made with blood. It was a life offering, and so that's why God accepted his. And yet, if you look at the second half of verse 2, 
It just seems to indicate they brought offerings based on their occupation. It wasn't anything to do with necessarily a, a prescription of blood that had to be offered. So what is it? What, what's the difference? Well, if, if all we had to go on was Genesis 4, it'd be harder, right? It'd be harder to understand, to figure out what's going on. But thankfully, we have verse 4 of Hebrews 11. It tells us exactly what the answer is. It tells us what the difference is between the two offerings and why one would be accepted and one would not. And again, the key difference that Hebrews gives us between those two offerings, faith. He says, that's what the difference is, why Abel's offering was accepted. Again, by faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks even though he's dead. Now again, What's so helpful about Hebrews, it keeps us out of the dark. It, it, it's defined for us what faith is. So we know what he means when he says, by faith he did this. He gave us that definition of what faith is back in verse 1. What is faith? Being sure, having confidence in what we hope for, and being certain, having convicting proof of what we do not presently see. And so what was it that Abel was hoping for? What was he certain that he could attain through his offering? Acceptance from God. That was the motivation of his heart. I, I, I'm seeking acceptance from God, and I'm believing and trusting that I can gain it through this. Take that understanding now, and then transfer it onto the story we have in Genesis 4, and all of a sudden it starts to open up some of the things that were formerly hidden. We couldn't understand before. Now we're beginning to see what was going on. If you look at verse 3, back in Genesis 4, you see that Cain, it says he brought some of the fruits of the soil. Remember, he, that was his occupation, so he's bringing some of his gardening to God as an offering. But then in verse 4, we read two things in Genesis 4, 4. First of all, we see the word but. Now that should have already kind of given us a clue that he wants to contrast something. He brought this, but he brought this. So he's already trying to say these things are different. And then he tells us, Abel brought, quote, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. Now, even without knowing a thing about the significance of the firstborn in Jewish culture and history, or the fact that the fat portions of an animal, that was like the choicest cuts, like the prime rib of an animal that you would bring, knowing from Hebrews 11 that the confident hope of Abel's offering was that he might be accepted before God. He's, he's saying, I want to show you the, this is the very best I have to offer. I'm so desperate to be connected with you. I want to bring the very best that I have. Now we begin to understand a little bit more why Abel's offering would be accepted and Cain's was not. Because sure, yeah, Cain brought something. He brought some of the fruit of his, his, his land. But what we see in verse 4 is that what Abel brought was the very best of what he had the first fruits of what he had. I'm going to give you the choicest cuts. That's what I'm bringing you. And as we think about the offerings that, that we bring to God today, ways that we want a, God to accept us, what we're given, now that we understand the difference between those offerings, is that Cain, what he was doing is he was just going through the motions. Thinking, I don't know, somehow that God would just be fooled by that. He, he's the person who would just be like, hey, you know, I showed up at church, sang this song, I put something in the offering plate. What do you mean God is not accepting me? I'm doing everything these guys are doing. 
He's just going through the motions of faith, and yet there's no genuine faith attached to his offering. What Abel is demonstrating for us is what true worship looks like. I'm offering you the very best that I have because my desire, my heart's desire is to be accepted by you. But don't get confused. It's easy to read a story like this and start to think, okay, what God really has is just expensive tastes. He just likes to have the, the best stuff. Don't, don't bring me that. No, God doesn't like vegetarian pizza. He likes meat lovers pizza. Maybe you think, you know, that God is like some kind of snotty rich girl who's like, I'm not going to accept a ring from Spence Diamonds. I need something from Tiffany's. Don't get that out of my presence. That, that's, that's not what's happening. Thankfully. <laughs> that's to miss entirely the fact that well beyond the gift itself, forget the gift, well beyond the gift, what's truly demonstrated by Abel's offering is the attitude of his heart towards the one he's making the offering to. He brings the very best because he's giving the demonstration of what's going on in his heart, his heart attitude towards God. In 2 Samuel, we're told a story about how uh, King David had the opportunity to just be given a piece of property that God had told him to sacrifice on instead of having to purchase it. He was just going to say, the guy who owned the property said, no, no, just take it, take it. And yet, in a similar act of faith and desiring to show the great value that God had to him, remember David's response to the generous offer of that landowner. He said, no, 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 don't give it to me. I want to pay full price for it. Why? Because I will not offer sacrifices to the Lord that cost me nothing. It's the attitude of his heart. I I want to give you the best of what I have. Contrast that, however, with what we read about in Luke 21, where Jesus and his disciples are sitting in the temple courts watching people bring their offerings to the treasury. Rich people are putting in all these big things, shoving their wads of cash in. A, a, A poor widow comes and takes two copper coins and puts them in the treasury. And what does Jesus say? I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. Why? He says, all these people gave gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Which tells us what? God's not fooled by our pretense, right? He's not fooled by just going through the motions. He sees sees the true difference between the offerings. Even if nobody else does, he sees the difference. And it shows us as well, he isn't concerned at all about the size of the offering we make, whatever it is you're bringing to him, finances, time, whatever it is. It's not about how much. It's it's solely looking at the attitude of our heart behind the offering. And when an offering made in faith like this, like Abel's, like David's, like that widow, what it demonstrates is both our trust in God to continue to provide our needs, When we give like this sacrificially, we're trusting, I know you can continue to provide for me. This isn't my security, you are. And it also is a humble recognition that everything we have is a gift from his hand to begin with. And that, in the end, is the difference God says makes our offerings acceptable to be for him. When we bring an offering in faith, humble and confident trust in him. Those are the offerings he accepts. Think about yourself for a minute. What are the offerings you bring to God? What are you bringing to Him to be acceptable? What do you offer to God through the week? Do you offer Him the best of what you have? He sees the difference. He sees underneath the surface. And He will accept an offering made by faith like this. So, the offering made in faith, whatever the size, 
according to these two passages, can allow us to accomplish the impossible. To accomplish the impossible. Sinful men and women can bring offerings to God and be accepted by Him. We can be accepted by God when we bring these offerings to Him. And yet the contrast that we have with Cain's offering, we see that there's also something that can devour that faith that makes our offerings acceptable. And it can devour us along with it. Something that God tells Cain he must gain mastery over before it destroys him. And if it could rob Cain's offerings of faith, blow up his whole world, as we see it clearly did in Genesis 4, there's nothing to say that it couldn't also do the same for us in our lives today. So let's look at this next thing together, faithful mastery. What does it mean to have faithful mastery? We see the answer to that once again. That faith-devouring, life-destroying thing is in uh, God's response to Cain. Once again, Genesis 4, verse 6 and 7. Look there again. Cain, he's angry, he's depressed because God has accepted Abel and his offering, rejected him and his. And God's response is to say, why are you angry? Why, are you, why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, listen, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. But you must master it. So clearly God's telling him, sin, that's the thing that's, that's draining the faith out of your offerings, leaving you on the outside looking in as it relates to acceptance with me. Sin is the thing that blocks you from access to me. But beyond that, I mean, if we read this, God gives this really vivid imagery, doesn't he? It's like a predator, he says, crouching right outside the door, waiting to devour him. Again, you see there in the second half of verse 7, sin is crouching at your door, desires to have you, but you must master it. I don't know if you've ever watched like a lion or a tiger, even just like a house cat, as they're hunting. But if you have, you'll know they're not like dogs. They don't just run up to the thing and try to pounce on it. They, they're, they're, they're sneaky, right? They, they, they crouch. They stalk their prey in order to, to gain the element of surprise and to try to get so close that even if they do eventually get noticed, it's too late. It's too late to escape. And the way you often see them stalking like this is exactly like that. They crouch down as low to the ground as possible in order to be uh, uh, unnoticed for as long as possible. And isn't that just the perfect description of sin in our lives? Isn't that exactly how it operates, never revealing itself fully is what it is, crouching, seeking to remain hidden behind seemingly meaningless, innocuous, smaller steps for as long as possible until at last we've wandered so close that now we feel like we have no hope of escape anymore. That's exactly what sin does. Listen, it's been said so many times, I'm just repeating what's been said forever. Nobody wakes up one morning and says, you know what, today I'm going to cheat on my spouse. Today, I'm going to embezzle thousands of dollars from my company. Today, I'm going to sacrifice my family on the altar of my job. No, nobody does that. No, you don't. It's always a result of smaller, seemingly harmless steps that you allow yourself to do. Well, this doesn't matter until you finally get so close to the place where it now escape seems impossible. What's even more incredible about what God says to Cain here is that along with describing for him exactly how his offerings could be acceptable, he says, do what's right, come with faith, and I will accept your offering. Like 
Jesus describing to Judas his betrayal to him as he's sitting at the table with him. God knows what's in Cain's heart. He knows what he's about to do. And he's offering him this one last chance to change his course, to repent before he does it. You see, he says, Cain's sin is crouching at your door. It's so close to devouring you. Your, your bitterness, your anger, your hatred of your brother and of me, it's so close to you right now. It's right outside your door. It desires to have you. But you must master it. You must master it. That, that Hebrew word there used for master has the same sense of have authority over something, to rule over something. Which means, and this should be incredibly encouraging to us this morning, what God is clearly telling us here is that faith... Faith is also will give us the ability to overcome any sin in our lives. By faith, we can overcome no matter how close, no matter how far we've walked down the path. By faith, we can still overcome whatever sin, which means we can turn. It's weird. We can turn the battle around and use the very faith that sin is trying to suck out of us. Use it as a battle, a battling tool against the sin that's trying to destroy us. Faith is the thing we can use to overcome our sin. James 4, 7, Jesus' half-brother tells us plainly, Submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Romans 8, 13, the Apostle Paul says, If you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Which means whatever the sin is. You know your own heart right now. Whatever sin it is you're facing today, maybe you've been facing for years. You feel like no matter how hard you try it, it's impossible to overcome. I can't be done. God's word tells us here that by faith, by confident trust in God's ability to release you from those chains, certainty that he will free you, even though you haven't seen it yet. I'm trusting you. I'm confident, God, you will free me. You too can have mastery over that sin. Not because you're so strong, but because he is. Because you see, that's what faith does. It, it accesses God's strength to fight, not yours. And if that's where you're at this morning, if you're here feeling trapped, chained by your sin, like failure is just inevitable, I'm right on the edge of that. Two ways, I think, that can help demonstrate that faith in God and his ability right now to help you. First of all, confession to God. Begin by confession to God. 1 John 1, 9 tells us, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, will forgive us of our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession, as John is using it here, has within it the the sense of acknowledgement. If we acknowledge our sins, if we acknowledge this isn't just something like a little white lie or a little this, it's, this is sin, and I acknowledge that to God. God, I know uh, I don't just have an impatience problem. I've got an anger problem. Uh, being, just masks off, games over, just coming to him honestly like that. God, I know I don't just have a wandering eye. I've got a lust problem. God, I know uh, I'm not just kind of, you know, cautious person. I, mean, I know I don't really trust you. I don't trust that you're good, and I need you to to help me with this. I can't do it on my own. Acknowledging your sin to God like that, open, honest, again, game's over, it's the very first step. You've already completed the first step to having mastery over those sins, if you'll do that. Because you've exposed the sin, you can see where it is now. It's not crouching behind a door anymore. You've called it for what it is. You can see it sitting there. And now you're accessing God's strength to fight it. 
Second step, second thing you can do right now, today, confession to others. That's the other strategy for mastering your sin, confession to others. James 5.16, confess your sins to each other. Pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man, that is one who has gained acceptance from God by faith, has great power to prevail. This is about seeking accountability from other Christians who are on the same, they have the same Godward trajectory as you, who can come alongside you, who can support you in the fight, who can pray with you, who can, they have a different point of view than you. They can see, you, you don't see what's behind the door. They're over here. They can be like, it's right behind the door. Don't take another step. That, that, that's, that's the benefit of what it means when we can confess to someone, hey, this is how I'm struggling. This is really what's going on in my heart. Now you've got people who can come around and support you, who can pray with you and help you. When you demonstrate your faith in God's ability like this, the promise of God's word is you truly can have mastery over that sin that feels otherwise impossible to overcome. You truly can. And yet as great as that all might sound, I know for some of us here this morning, our response might be to say, yeah, Yeah, that sounds really good. I sure wish someone could have told me that 10 years ago or seven months ago, or two weeks ago. Because, you see, now it's too late for me. I've, I've taken all those little steps I knew I should, and I opened that door wide, and now sin has devoured me. I made the, the big step, and now it's too late for me. I, my life is blown up. I see wreckage everywhere I look, even when I look in the mirror. Sounds good. I I wish I would have known that before. If that's where you're at this morning, as I often say, I want to invite you to keep reading. Keep reading. As God's Word also reveals to us this last piece, our faithful Savior. Our faithful Savior, and we'll close with this. Because if you look at Cain, that's exactly what he's done, hasn't he? He opened the door wide and let sin pounce on him and devour him. The very next verse, it's like he hasn't even heard what God said. Verse 8, he goes out, invites his brother out to the field, and with most wicked speed, he kills his own brother. First murder ever recorded. Now, what should God's response be? What should God do? Someone who has so clearly failed, so clearly ignored his repeated warnings and, and gracious warnings about murdering his own brother, and he does it anyway. Shouldn't he just end his life right here and now? Why is he asking him these questions? Why is he bothering? He's, he's guilty, and he knows he's guilty. Why, sh- why shouldn't God carry out immediate justice against the blood of Abel that's crying out to him from the ground, that, that, that the ground that's soaked up is innocent blood. Shouldn't he just immediately carry out justice? And the answer is, of course, yes. Of course he should. And yet, the more you read this book and understand the God revealed inside, the more you see the storyline of the whole Bible is a one of grace instead of judgment. Mercy instead of justice. 
Think about it. If the blood of Abel, killed without cause, cried out for justice, how much more does the blood of the truly innocent Son of God put to death on a Roman cross cry out for justice? Way more. And yet, in the very next chapter of Hebrews, Hebrews 12, we read that by turning to God in faith, when we come to Him, He says we no longer come to a place of judgment. He says what? You have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It speaks a better word. Why? What's, what's better about it? Well, the good news of the gospel is this, that in sending Jesus, that, that promised rescuer all the way from Genesis 3.15, sending him to die in our place, Rather than just ignoring our sins, just passing over them as though justice didn't matter or wasn't required, God in Jesus made the full and just payment for us so that we wouldn't have to. He makes the payment, he takes justice on himself for us, and where Abel's blood cried out only for justice, now the blood of Jesus shed for us cries out instead for grace. It cries out for you to have mercy where justice is deserved. One of the places you see this really clearly laid out is in a place like in Exodus where God warns of this coming judgment on the Egyptians. And he says this angel of death is going to come and kill the firstborn of everyone in the land. And the way God's people are told they can avoid this coming judgment is to mark the doorposts of their homes with the blood of a spotless lamb. To put this sign or mark over the door that signifies their faith in God to deliver them to deliver them from this coming judgment. And if you look at God's response to Cain's pitiful cry for mercy, Genesis 4.15, after he's failed to master his sin, he's opened the door, let sin come in and devour him, and killed his own brother. You see that where justice is undoubtedly deserved, God marks Cain instead with a sign that covers him with protection from the punishment his sin deserves. I love what Derek Kidner writes about this in his commentary on Genesis, stating that what what we see in God's act there is this. God's concern for the innocent in verse 10 is matched only by his care for the sinner. And God's answering pledge together with his mark or sign is almost a covenant, making him virtually Cain's protector. This, this This is the God of the Bible. I don't know if you've heard of God as this wrathful, judgmental, want to come down on everyone. This is what the God of the Bible is like. And if you're here this morning and you feel like your sin has devoured you, like you've just, you're beyond reach, beyond God's help anymore, my prayer for you is that by faith, by faith you would know and experience the blood of the innocent Son of God shed in your place to speak a better word than the blood of Abel over you. And you would receive life in the place of death, mercy instead of justice, freely available to all of us. Let's pray. I'd ask if you're helping me serve communion, if you'd come forward at this time. Father, you are full of grace and compassion and mercy.
We know you're also a just God. You don't wink at sin. You don't say, hey, it's okay. Because you're just, you know that sin must be punished. Grace is the only way that we escape that just punishment. God, your grace is amazing to us. We know that what our sins deserve is justice. The blood we've shed through the course of our lives cries out to the ground for justice, and yet your blood speaks a better word than that blood of Abel. Reminds us that you seek us. You are a God who leaves the comforts, who leaves the glory of heaven and comes down and seeks us and stands in our place. You are the one thing that makes us acceptable before you. On our own, we could never accomplish it. But by faith in your son and what he accomplished on the cross for us, we can have full acceptance from you for all time. That one single offering you say offered for all time, for all sin. Remind us of it often. Forgive us when we forget and go back to trying to earn your acceptance. Remind us that a grateful heart offered up in faith to you is the greatest offering we can. And everything else we offer is just giving back something of what you is yours anyway. Through this we pray for your glory and for our good. Amen.